Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today's program is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Today, I'd like to introduce Garrett Schaefer, Weeds Field Specialist with South Dakota State University. Garrett will be discussing cover crops and weeds. Welcome to the podcast, Garrett. Thank you. Happy to be here. So to get us started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I, uh, I work for South Dakota State University Extension. I've been here for around uh, almost five years. Uh, originally from Kansas, uh, grew up on a small ranch down there, uh, went to Kansas State University and got my bachelor's and master's in agronomy. And uh, then I got a job in South Dakota, so I took it and then uh, been pursuing uh, different research topics. And one of those topics have been cover crops and how to interact with weeds and uh, herbicides. Excellent. So let's go ahead and, and dive right in. Let's talk a little bit about how growers can utilize cover crops to make weeds less competitive. So given an overall kind of approach, um, so in, in general, if you're going to, most, most producers know this already, but if you're going to put cover crops into their uh, planning of uh, crop rotation or just in general management, it's going to increase your management for sure. It's going to take more time um, to plan out uh, your process of when you're going to plant certain crops. Uh, you might have to change your genetics a little bit, get uh, beans that are done a little earlier, maturing, early maturing, corn, same way. Uh, might have to increase small grains if you want more cover crops. Um, but again, uh, from everything I've heard from producers, fel failure could happen. Um, especially as there's a lot of learning stages to happen uh, when you start out with cover crops. Um, but although I, what I've heard uh, through proper experience and you gain that over time and information gathering through uh, going to conferences like this and other uh, on-farm uh, research trials, visiting those and, and talking to your neighbors, uh, you can get great success with uh, cover crops and they can, of course, give you a lot of benefits. Of course, you want to know your goal. You want to choose species of cover crops that fit your needs and, uh, of course, your weed issues. And that's going to change. Depends on uh, where you're at and, uh, yeah, your goals, what you want out of the situation. In your experience, what weed species seem to be the, the worst offenders and make it the hardest for cover crops to compete against them? Yeah, so in South Dakota and most of the central United States, the big ones, at least for us, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you overall U.S. too, but in our area, it's for sure water hemp, kochia, and horseweed are the big ones. Um, foxtail species like green foxtail, yellow foxtail, uh, wild oak can be an issue as well in small grains. But 
if you look at uh, across the United States in general, Palmer amaranth is going to be a, a big one it comes to broadleaf weeds, water hemp, other pigweed species like smooth amaranth, uh, red root pigweed, horseweed, um, kochia again nationwide where it's dry basically is an issue. Morning glory species, um, giant ragweed, common lamb's quarters, uh, common ragweed, and also some canvas thistle scattered throughout. And then grass species, uh, again, foxtail species, wild oat, Johnson grass, especially in uh, sorghum, uh, downy brome, Italian ryegrass, bluegrass, crabgrass. So a lot of those species are uh, the most troublesome. Some, of course, are going to be more widespread than others in, in different states, areas, etc. But in general, um, most of them are annuals, uh, size so canned thistle I listed, but majority of these are annual species that cause issues. And usually with cover cropping, uh, you can work around them and uh, cover crops can suppress them uh, and hopefully decrease their abundance on your place, at least as a tool. Okay. So, as we've seen the past few springs, there can be a lot of fluctuation in temperature and moisture amounts. Um, how do those factors influence how prominent weeds can become and how can cover crops help maybe mitigating some of the influence that those fluctuations in temperature and moisture level can have? So in general, uh, more moisture you have, um, again, with adequate temperature, more weeds you're gonna have in general. Of course, unless you have too much moisture, which we've had some of those issues in the last few years, 2018 for sure, spring of 2019 as well. Um, of course, there's too wet and then even weeds don't like growing. So we've had experienced that in South Dakota. We had the most prevent plant acres in the nation, at least a year in there, I think. Um, so in general, you have more weeds, but with cover crops, um, uh, again, they're going to decrease. You're going to decrease your moisture at the same time and increase it. It sounds weird, but again, cover crops um, give you uh, a root mass in the soil. So they're using moisture at the same time. They're going to be letting more infiltrate into the soil. So that's benefiting you both ways. And it gives you competition, suppression, and uh, mo most of the two big ones, competition, suppression to the weeds. And also we can't forget uh, leopathy, which is a chemical reaction in the soil. Um, that can uh, suppress weed growth. So we talked a little bit about temperature levels and, and moisture levels, but what about uh, timing? Are there certain times of the year when having cover crops on the ground is more helpful for controlling weeds? Yeah, so it depends again on your goals, what you're trying to get out of it and what kind of weeds you have. So if you um, want to establish cover crop in the spring, it's going to be very helpful for early emerging annuals. Um, and then if you have a lot of winter annual weeds or very early emerging uh, summer annual weeds, like kochia is very early emerging. It, can, it shows up in South Dakota sometimes in February. I know if you go south towards Kansas, it can even show up even earlier than that. So more like a winter annual cover crop uh, would be helpful there. Something that's going to be already there in the ground established growing to give competition towards that. Um, and then of course for more warm season weeds, um, you have your warm season covers uh, like in, in, after small grain, for example, uh, like after wheat, uh, after oats, something like that. 
those cover crops, if you give an establishment, those can suppress, of course, your warm season weeds after that cash crop is taken off. And also, if it depends on your management, if that's left there, it can suppress growth of something that's a winter annual weed like marriage tail can be in some areas. Okay. So now if a grower is using, say, an integrated weed management program to uh, help quell some of their weed problems on their operation, how can cover crops be included as part of that weed management program? So again, um, just going at it as a, a tool in the toolbox, cover crops can be very helpful um, if managed properly. Um, of course, you're not going to always eliminate um, the weed issues in, in general, um, and you're not always going to be able to get rid of all herbicide use. Even though I've been on farms, um, producers' farms, and also research farms, where they can almost eliminate all herbicide use uh, using a diversified approach to cover cropping and just uh, cash crops in general. So it can be done. It's rare, but it can be done. So in general, um, the uh, dependence upon herbicides is usually still somewhat there, even if you're using cover crops. But cover crops are just part of the larger management strategy. Uh, when, when you think about uh, decreasing um, weeds in general as an integrated approach, uh, like I said earlier, uh, the cash crop rotation is a bigger issue. So if you want to diversify your cash crop rotation, again, that of course uh, is, a, is a big deal because it comes into marketing and everything else and equipment use. And I know it's, it's a mess, but in general, that's going to be a bigger deal when it comes to integrated weed management than uh, just using cover crops by themselves. So it's cover crops just a part of the big book. Okay. So we talked a little bit about some of those worst offenders on the on the weed species side of things. On the other side of the coin, are there specific species of cover crops that are uh, better at suppressing weeds than others? So in uh, when it comes to suppression, biomass is your friend uh, for sure. So you want species that produce a lot of biomass. So that's more above ground growth. Uh, like cereal grains, rye is probably the most popular when it comes to that, but also in some areas, triticale does well, oats, barley, wheat, um, some of those are cheaper than others, depends on how much you want to spend. Um, but again, to increase ground cover, you can mix in with those, like with rye, a radish, a turnip, uh, or a legume like uh, red clover or something like that. So in general, all those are going to give you weed suppression um, techniques um, that you can use with that. Uh, I've seen uh, organic producers use some of these species that I mentioned and get good uh, suppression with those if uh, properly managed. Okay. So you talked a little bit earlier about crop rotations and how cover crops can really be beneficial with crop, rotated, crop rotations. Are there certain uh, combinations of cover crops and cash crops in a certain rotation that are more effective in reducing weed pressure or does, does that order matter? So it depends on your, uh, where you live in the course in the country. And the more farther north, small grains are gonna be your friend when it comes to integrating cover crops. If you're more south, again, you're gonna have a lot more opportunity to grow, grow cover crops just because of the growth season is so much longer. In South Dakota, of course, we have about four to five months of good growth. And then after that, it dwindles. Um, but again, so small grains are your friend uh, or earlier harvested crops in general. 
because they give you more time to get cover crops established. But really, you can get a cover crop into any, uh, almost any cash crop, really. It can't happen. Um, they can seed by seeding, by, by air, um, by drill, um, of course, by uh, uh, some type of, uh, usually a lot of producers make their own rigs. Um, some of them I've seen off old sprayers, et cetera, high boys, something like that. Um, again, you can play with uh, cash crop with row width. I know in South Dakota, we're looking at, uh, looking at 60 inch corn or even 40 inch corn to give us a little more um, sunlight down between our rows and we can grow a cover crop and then horse hopefully graze it afterwards. So there's a lot of things you can do to uh, increase cover crop growth in your cash crop. Does adding livestock and grazing livestock in a cropping system, how does that influence weed control? So adding livestock uh, in general are gonna help you um, because first off, that means you're probably doing a diversified mix of cover crop species and you're integrating livestock. So in livestock, most people don't think about this, but most weeds that we have, annual weeds, are high in protein and usually nutrition as well. Um, so livestock going to take out uh, or suppress those weeds, you're gonna either take out the leaves, the leaves can't, weed, weeds can't produce as much seed so decrease seed production and uh, at the same time possibly take out all seeds so they can't even produce seed or rip them out of ground so they can't produce seed. So they're gonna be helpful or stomp them in the ground. A lot of hoof traffic, I've seen that and that can decrease your weeds as well. We'll be right back to the podcast, but first I want to thank our sponsor. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools, and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. And now back to the podcast. You talked a little bit about how growers should use cover crops to meet their goals for weed mitigation. So what circumstances or conditions would have to be present in order for a grower to use cover crops to mitigate maybe a large weed seed bank? So when we talk about uh, weed seed banks, so it's the only time you don't want to deposit into the bank is when it comes to weed seed. Uh, of course, if you're talking about general banks, you love a deposit into your bank account, but this is one deposit you don't want. So to do that, um, an integrated approach, of course, your goal uh, would help with this. Um, so when it comes to cover crops, uh, we talked about weed suppression, we talked about um, uh, competition and alleopathy. So all three of those uh, can be given you through, I mean, one cover crop in general, rye can do that. All three of those can. So all those that are competing with weeds are going to decrease the deposit into your weed seed bank. So the less weeds, of course, the less weed seed bank. Again, uh, a lot of those weeds uh, produce seeds that can last a long time. There's weed seeds that can last in the soil profile for probably over, even over 60 years. Majority are not going to last that long, probably three to five wow. years is average. 
the That's one I know it quite a while. Yeah, so Velvet Leaf's the one I can remember. I think it's over 60 years if I, I'm right. It's a pretty long time given the right environment. But in general, three to four years is kind of average, like kosha, stuff like that, water hemp. Um, and again, it depends. In a no-till situation, that's going to change because as weed season, a no-till situation can be up closer to the surface and they're open to predation. So uh, insects, uh, the environment in general, weather, uh, anything's going to eat them. And then if you till, uh, you're actually burying those weed seeds down lower in the profile and they actually could uh, last longer than they would on top of the soil surface. Wow, long lasting weeds. Um, so we talked a little bit earlier about um, in the spring and um, getting it, trying to get ahead of weeds before they really start in, but what about, um, for example, in the fall, uh, does the timing of when that cover crop gets established influence the amount of weed control that can happen? Yeah, so the, the quicker you get something established, of course, the quicker suppression, um, the more weed growth. So you want really in the fall, if, if you're going into like a, a fall cover crop, it'd be best to have at least like six inches of growth um, to compete well um, in general. So again, up, up here north, that's gonna be harder to do. So you might have to go in and spread by the air or you do an interseeding of a cover crop, that's common. So we've seen through a lot of research that if you drill it in, um, you're gonna get, of course, a more even stand uh, when you fly it on or spread it on, again, it's gonna be, the stands are gonna be uneven usually. And the problem there is seed soil contact and uh, you have to use species that can do that. So small seed species, you have to stay away from bigger seed species of cover crops. But if you drill them, you get away from all those issues. You get it, the seed where it needs to be, uh, the depth it needs to be at, right where the moisture is possibly, so it can germinate faster and uh, be quicker to compete uh, with those weeds. So trying to give that cover crop a advantage over spreading it on top of ground that potentially already has weed seeds germinating it. The weed seeds will probably take over um, a lot of those areas and the cover crop won't, you won't like the, the outcome there usually. Okay. So now on the other side of that coin, does the method of termination that's used for cover crop, how does that affect weeds and uh, the possibility that weeds might infiltrate a field. Yeah, so most uh, termination methods in general uh, are going to be a burn down with a chemical or you do a rolling, roll them down with a roller crimper or something like that. And then you burn it down or, or vice versa, you burn it down, roll it. There's a lot of thoughts out there or just rolling them. I've seen that as well. And then, of course, there's ideas out there as well as tillage to do it. There's at least, I've seen commercials, I've seen advertisements for that. But in general, if you want to go after the healthy soil um, that you want with cover crops, uh, of course, using a, a burn down chemical or burn down rolling or just rolling are going to be uh, kind of the go-tos to help out with all of the benefits that cover crops can give you. And, and in general as well, um, burn down is going to give you the most consistent kill probably or rolling versus and, and burn down together, one or the other mixture of those. So now I, I kind of want to switch gears here and uh, let's kind of talk a little bit about um, the topic of your upcoming presentation for our National Cover Crop Summit. 
which uh, for those of you listening, uh, our National Cover Crop Summit will be held March 17th and 18th, and you can register at covercropstrategies.com. So uh, we're very excited to have Garrett as one of our speakers about cover crop eggs and uh, how those interact. So um, to kind of kick off our, our conversation about your upcoming presentation, uh, let's talk about um, residual herbicides. Uh, that's typically one concern area that growers may have when they're using cover crops. How long can herbicides remain active in the soil? So again, with when it comes to residuals, um, it depends on the chemical, um, the chemical group and how it functions in the soil itself. Uh, there's a lot of things that affect uh, degradation uh, or any kind of releasing of chemicals. There's, the main things is plant uptake, voltization, surface runoff, leaching, chemical decomposition, uh, soil absorption, soil release, or microbial de decomposition uh, of these chemicals. Uh, the most, the most one is probably the most uh, well well used with chemicals in the soil surface and in the soil itself would be uh, microbial decomposition. Majority of herbicides are decomposed through microbial activity in the soil, basically like a uh, uh, buffet to them in general on some chemicals and uh, they eat away at those uh, in a good way. Uh, it decreases them so they don't last in the soil for multiple years, uh, which some can. Um, besides that, uh, chemical decomposition, so like oxidation or uh, reduction or hydrolysis, so that's like a chemical reaction that happens when the soil solution, so the water in between your soil particles uh, engage with the chemical itself Herbicide molecules react with water, and then of course, a reaction happens and they, they uh, can decompose that way. Uh, leaching, uh, that's what you probably hear a lot about with uh, some chemicals that can move uh, throughout um, the soil profile, uh, even the drain tile, et cetera. Surface runoff's an issue. And then of course, a little bit through plant uptake, not much, because plants even uh, any kind of plants, if you know much about uh, plant uh, biology, all plants take up herbicides. So some of them can't detoxify fast enough. And uh, again, if they can't do that, they die. Otherwise, they're resistant uh, to that uh, chemical itself or photo decomposition. Um, soil absorption is a big one for some chemicals. And usually that deals with more organic matter or uh, uh, clay matter in the soil, so how much clay you have, how much organic matter levels. That's why in some herbicide labels, they uh, tell you to increase your rate on certain uh, soil types. Uh, that's the reason why is because of soil absorption. If the soil absorbs to that chemical, it can't be in the soil solution and the weeds can't take it up. And also in some rare occasions, soil release, so those particles can release that chemical. If something happens with the uh, the positive negative charges of those soil uh, particles and then of course it can be back available in soil solution the weeds can take it up or the cover crop can be affected by it so in general all those things microbial decomposition is the biggest one across the board and that usually means with uh, a healthier soil you're going to have my more more, more uh, microbial decomposition and uh, at the same time that soil can be warmed up through microbes because all the activity is happening you can have more soil uh, health there and more growth your cover crops as well. 
um, through a lot of soil health uh, principles being done there. So what influences how long a herbicide is biologically active in the soil? So in, in general, what I mentioned, uh, so stuff that farmer producers can easily uh, approach this along a how long. So if you apply a pre-emergent herbicide, let's say before corn, and you're going to cut silage on it, and you're going to plant it, how do you know um, there are potentially some areas of your field are going to be higher levels of herbicide than others? Um, in general, it's not going to be uniform across your field. I've never seen a field that's uniform you know, when it comes to even soil profile uh, across the whole field. So like field entrances, usually field edges, turnaround areas, eroded hills, uh, areas with extreme pH or low areas in your field are going to have higher areas, uh, higher uh, amounts of carryover likely to have higher amounts of carryover than others. So in general, if you know uh, what you applied, when you applied it, the label will give you some idea of when and how long that herbicide will last because they give you some rotational intervals in there. But if you, we all know herbicide half-life of like basically every chemical is out there. And that's how much, how many days half that chemical is going to be in the environment still or in the soil after application. And that does help a little bit, but really what you got to do to really know what's out there is do a, uh, a bioassay. Um, so there's one way of doing it. If you have a lot of time, times on your side, you can go out there and drill a few strips of the cover crop you wanna um, plant in that field. Wait about a few days to a week, see what happens, what grows, and you can see there. Or if uh, your time is, is short, um, I would suggest while your cash crop is still standing close to harvest, maybe a week out or so, uh, gather about, uh, about a pound or a gallon, of, I'm sorry, about 10 pounds of soil, usually around a gallon or so. Uh, put it in a flower, a flower pot, mix it together really well so it's a representative sample, and then get another flower pot that has soil, similar soil from the same field, maybe that wasn't applied any chemical to it, and then grow that cover crop in those pots. And within a, a week, you should be able to tell uh, what your uh, chemical residue will be. If something grows, you'll probably be all right. If something doesn't grow, you might have some issues. Um, in general, that's the best way to tell. From what I experienced with research, uh, I have not uh, seen a uh, majority of larger issues that we thought we would have with some of these chemicals. So if you're willing to take a little bit of a hit on your cover crop stand uh, versus uh, if you had no chemical there, it'd be all right. So if you take a 30% hit on your cover crop stand, that does sound like a lot, but it's better than having nothing out there. Uh, even if you have like a high rate of re a residual herbicide out there still, if you're willing to take that hit, uh, I guess that's that can work. Okay. Well, actually, we are running short on time for today. So uh, where can our listeners go for more information about cover crops, weeds, and herbicides used to combat those weeds? So first off, if you, of course, it matters where you live. So I, I go after whoever your closest university is in your state, and then uh, they see what research they have in your area. Or uh, there's a lot of documents on the uh, internet. Of course, you can find those through just Googling them. Or uh, you can give me a call, too, uh, at my office here in, in Aberdeen, South Dakota. I'd love to talk to you, 605-290-6164. Um, or uh, email me, 
cetera. I'm, I'm pretty sure that information will be available. So Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Garrett, for joining us today. Uh, be sure to look for more information about our upcoming National Cover Crop Summit on March 17th and 18th. Once again, I want to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com.